Section 8 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 8. For the first few days, like a tune which will be running in one's head, and maddening one soon enough, but of which one has not for the moment got hold, the things I was to love so passionately in Bergotte's style had not yet caught my eye. I could not, it is true, lay down the novel of his which I was reading, but I fancied that I was interested in the story alone, as in the first dawn of love, when we go every day to meet a woman at some party or entertainment, by the charm of which we imagine it is that we are attracted. Then I observed the rare, almost archaic phrases which he liked to employ at certain points, where a hidden flow of harmony, a prelude contained and concealed in the work itself, would animate and elevate his style. And it was at such points as these, too, that he would begin to speak of the vain dream of life, of the inexhaustible torrent of fair forms, of the sterile, splendid torture of understanding and loving, of the moving effigies which ennoble for all time the charming and venerable fronts of our cathedrals, that he would express a whole system of philosophy, new to me, by the use of marvellous imagery, to the inspiration of which I would naturally have ascribed that sound of harping which began to chime and echo in my ears, an accompaniment to which that imagery added something ethereal and sublime. One of these passages of Bergot, the third or fourth which I had detached from the rest, filled me with a joy to which the meagre joy I had tasted in the first passage bore no comparison a joy which i felt myself to have experienced in some innermost chamber of my soul deep undivided vast from which all obstructions and partitions seemed to have been swept away for what had happened was that while i recognized in this passage the same taste for uncommon phrases the same bursts of music the same idealist philosophy which had been present in the earlier passages without my having taken them into account as the source of my pleasure i now no longer had the impression of being confronted by a particular passage in one of bergot's works which traced a purely bi-dimensional figure in outline upon the surface of my mind but rather of the ideal passage of bergot common to every one of his books and to which all the earlier, similar passages, now becoming merged in it, had added a kind of density and volume, by which my own understanding seemed to be enlarged. I was by no means Bergot's sole admirer. He was the favourite writer also of a friend of my mother's, a highly literary lady, while Dr. Du Bourbon had kept all his patients waiting until he finished Bergot's latest volume and it was from his consulting-room, 
and from a house in a park near Cambrai, that some of the first seeds were scattered of that taste for bogot, a rare growth in those days, but now so universally acclimatized that one finds it flowering everywhere throughout Europe and America, and even in the tiniest villages, rare still in its refinement, but in that alone. What my mother's friend, and it would seem what Dr. de Bourbon liked above all in the writings of Bergot, was just what I liked, the same flow of melody, the same old-fashioned phrases, and certain others, quite simple and familiar, but so placed by him, in such prominence, as to hint at a particular quality of taste on his part, and also, in the sad parts of his books, a sort of roughness, a tone that was almost harsh, and he himself, no doubt, realised that these were his principal attractions. For in his later books, if he had hit upon some great truth, or upon the name of an historic cathedral, he would break off his narrative and in an invocation, an apostrophe, a lengthy prayer, would give a free outlet to that effluence which, in the earlier volumes, remained buried beneath the form of his prose, discernible only in a rippling of its surface, and perhaps even more delightful, more harmonious, when it was thus veiled from the eye, when the reader could give no precise indication of where the murmur of the current began, or of where it died away, these passages in which he delighted were our favourites also. For my own part I knew all of them by heart. I felt even disappointed when he resumed the thread of his narrative. Whenever he spoke of something whose beauty had until then remained hidden from me, of pine forests, or of hailstorms, of Notre Dame de Paris, of Athelie, or of Phaedra, by some piece of imagery he would make their beauty explode and drench me with its essence. And so, dimly realising that the universe contained innumerable elements which my feeble senses would be powerless to discern, did he not bring them within my reach. I wished that I might have his opinion, some metaphor of his, upon everything in the world, and especially upon such things as I might have an opportunity, some day, of seeing for myself. And among such things, more particularly still upon some of the historic buildings of France, upon certain views of the sea, because the emphasis with which, in his books, he referred to these, showed that he regarded them as rich in significance and beauty. But alas! Upon almost everything in the world, his opinion was unknown to me. I had no doubt that it would differ entirely from my own, since his came down from an unknown sphere towards which I was striving to raise myself. Convinced that my thoughts would have seemed pure foolishness to that perfected spirit, I had so completely obliterated them all that, if I happened to find, in one of his books, something which had already occurred to my own mind, my heart would swell with gratitude and pride, as though some deity had, in his infinite bounty, restored it to me, had pronounced it to be beautiful and right. It happened now and then, 
that a page of Bergotte would express precisely those ideas which I used often at night, when I was unable to sleep, to write to my grandmother and mother, and so concisely and well, that his page had the appearance of a collection of mottoes for me to set at the head of my letters. And so, too, in later years, when I began to compose a book of my own, and the quality of some of my sentences seemed so inadequate that I could not make up my mind to go on with the undertaking, I would find the equivalent of my sentences in Bergotte's. But it was only then, when I read them in his pages, that I could enjoy them. When it was I myself who composed them, in my anxiety that they should exactly reproduce what I seemed to have detected in my mind, and in my fear of their not turning out true to life, I had no time to ask myself whether what I was writing would be pleasant to read. But indeed there was no kind of language, no kind of ideas which I really liked, except these. My feverish and unsatisfactory attempts were themselves a token of my love, a love which brought me no pleasure, but was, for all that, intense and deep. And so, when I came suddenly upon similar phrases in the writings of another, that is to say stripped of their familiar accompaniment of scruples and repressions and self-tormentings, I was free to indulge to the full my own appetite for such things, just as a cook who, once in a while, has no dinner to prepare for other people, can then find time to gormandize himself. And so, when I had found one day in a book by Bergotte, some joke about an old family servant, to which his solemn and magnificent style added a great deal of irony, but which was, in principle, what I had often said to my grandmother about Françoise, and when, another time, I had discovered that he thought not unworthy of reflection in one of those mirrors of absolute truth which were his writings, a remark similar to one which I had had occasion to make on our friend Monsieur Legrandin, and, moreover, my remarks on Françoise and Monsieur Lagrandin were among those which I would most resolutely have sacrificed for Bergotte's sake, in the belief that he would find them quite without interest. Then it was suddenly revealed to me that my own humble existence and the realms of truth were less widely separated than I had supposed, that at certain points they were actually in contact, and in my new-found confidence and joy I wept upon his printed page, as in the arms of a long-lost father. From his books I had formed an impression of Bergotte as a frail and disappointed old man, who had lost his children, and had never found any consolation. And so I would read, or rather sing his sentences in my brain, with rather more dolce, rather more lento, than he himself had, perhaps, intended, and his simplest phrase would strike my ears with something peculiarly gentle and loving in its intonation. More than anything else in the world, I cherished his philosophy, and had pledged myself to it in lifelong devotion. It made me impatient to reach the age when I should be eligible to attend the class at school called philosophy. I did not wish to learn or do anything else there, but simply to exist and be guided entirely by the mind of Bergotte. And, if I had been told then 
that the metaphysicians whom I was actually to follow there resembled him in nothing. I should have been struck down by the despair a young lover feels who has sworn lifelong fidelity when a friend speaks to him of the other mistresses he will have in time to come. One Sunday, while I was reading in the garden, I was interrupted by Swan, who had come to call upon my parents. What are you reading? May I look? Why is Bergod? Who has been telling you about him? I replied that Bloch was responsible. Oh, yes, that boy I saw here once, who looks so like the Bellini portrait of Mohammed II. It's an astonishing likeness. He has the same arched eyebrows and hooked nose, and prominent cheekbones. When his beard comes, he'll be Mohammed himself. Anyhow, he has good taste, for Bagot is a charming creature. And seeing how much I seemed to admire Bagot, Swan, who never spoke at all about the people he knew, made an exception in my favour and said, I know him well. If you would like him to write a few words on the title page of your book, I could ask him for you. I dared not accept such an offer, but bombarded Swan with questions about his friend. Can you tell me, please, who is his favourite actor? Actor? No, I can't say. But I do know this. There's not a man on the stage whom he thinks equal to Burma. He puts her above everyone. Have you seen her? No, sir. My parents do not allow me to go to the theatre. That is a pity. You should insist. Berma in Phaedra, in the Cid. Well, she's only an actress, if you like. But you know that I don't believe very much in the hierarchy of the arts. As he spoke, I noticed what had often struck me before in his conversations with my grandmother's sisters, that whenever he spoke of serious matters, whenever he used an expression which seemed to imply a definite opinion upon some important subject, he would take care to isolate, to sterilise it, by using a special intonation, mechanical and ironic, as though he had put the phrase or word between inverted commas, and was anxious to disclaim any personal responsibility for it. As who should say, the hierarchy, don't you know, as silly people call it. But then, if it was so absurd, why did he say the hierarchy? A moment later he went on, Her acting will give you as noble an inspiration as any masterpiece of art in the world, as, oh, I don't know. And he began to laugh. Shall we say the Queens of Chartres? Until then, I had supposed that his horror of having to give a serious opinion was something Parisian and refined, in contrast to the provincial dogmatism of my grandmother's sisters. And I had imagined also that it was characteristic of the mental attitude towards life, of the circle in which Swann moved, where, by a natural reaction from the lyrical enthusiasms of earlier generations, an excessive importance was given to small and precise facts, formerly regarded as vulgar, and anything in the nature of phrase-making was banned. But now I found myself slightly shocked by this attitude, which Swan invariably adopted when face to face with generalities. He appeared unwilling to risk even having an opinion, and to be at his ease only when he could furnish, with meticulous accuracy, some precise but unimportant detail. But in so doing he did not take into account that even here he was giving an opinion, 
holding a brief, as they say, for something, that the accuracy of his details had an importance of its own. I thought again of the dinner that night, when I had been so unhappy, because Mamma would not be coming up to my room, and when he had dismissed the balls given by the Princess de Leon as being of no importance. And yet it was to just that sort of amusement that he was devoting his life. For what other kind of existence did he reserve the duties of saying in all seriousness what he thought about things, of formulating judgments which he would not put between inverted commas? And when would he cease to give himself up to occupations of which at the same time he made out that they were absurd? I noticed, too, in the manner in which Swann spoke to me of Bergot, something which, to do him justice, was not peculiar to himself, but was shared by all that writer's admirers at that time, at least by my mother's friend and by Dr. de Bourbon. Like Swann, they would say of Bergot, he has a charming mind, so individual. He has a way of his own of saying things, which is a little far-fetched, but so pleasant. You never need to look for his name on the title-page. You can tell his work at once. But none of them had yet gone so far as to say, He is a great writer. He has great talent. They did not even credit him with talent at all. They did not speak, because they were not aware of it. We are very slow in recognising, in the peculiar physiognomy of a new writer, the type which is labelled great talent in our museum of general ideas. Simply because that physiognomy is new and strange, we can find in it no resemblance to what we are accustomed to call talent. We say rather originality, charm, delicacy, strength. And then one day, we add up the sum of these, and find that it amounts, simply, to talent. Are there any books in which Bergotte has written about Burma? I asked Monsieur Swann. I think he has, in that little essay on Racine, but it must be out of print. Still, there has perhaps been a second impression. I will find out. Anyhow, I can ask Bergotte himself all that you want to know next time he comes to dine with us. He never misses a week, from one year's end to another. He is my daughter's greatest friend. They go about together, and look at old towns and cathedrals and castles. As I was still completely ignorant of the different grades in the social hierarchy, the fact that my father found it impossible for us to see anything of Swan's wife and daughter had, for a long time, had the contrary effect of making me imagine them as separated from us by an enormous gulf which greatly enhanced their dignity and importance in my eyes. I was sorry that my mother did not dye her hair and redden her lips, as I had heard our neighbour, Madame Sazerat, say that Madame Swann did, to gratify not her husband, but Monsieur de Charloux. And I felt that, to her, we must be an object of scorn, which distressed me particularly on account of the daughter, such a pretty little girl, as I had heard and one of whom I used often to dream, always imagining her with the same features and appearance which I bestowed upon her quite arbitrarily, but with a charming effect. But from this afternoon, when I had learned that Mademoiselle Swann 
was a creature living in such rare and fortunate circumstances, bathed as in her natural element, in such a sea of privilege that, if she should ask her parents whether any one were coming to dinner, she would be answered in those two syllables, radiant with celestial light, would hear the name of that golden guest who was to her no more than an old friend of her family, Bergot, that for her the intimate conversation at table, corresponding to what my great-aunt's conversation was for me, would be the words of Bergot upon all those subjects which he had not been able to take up in his writings, and on which I would fain have heard him utter oracles, and that, above all, when she went to visit other towns, he would be walking by her side, unrecognised and glorious, like the gods who came down of old, from heaven to dwell among mortal men. Then I realised both the rare worth of a creature such as Mademoiselle Swann, and, at the same time, how coarse and ignorant I should appear to her. And I felt so keenly how pleasant, and yet how impossible it would be, for me to become her friend, that I was filled at once with longing, and with despair. And usually, from this time forth, when I thought of her, I would see her standing before the porch of a cathedral, explaining to me what each of the statues meant, and, with a smile which was my highest commendation, presenting me, as her friend, to Bergotte. And invariably the charm of all the fancies which the thought of cathedrals used to inspire in me, the charm of the hills and valleys of the Ile de France, and of the plains of Normandy, would radiate brightness and beauty over the picture I had formed in my mind of Mademoiselle Swann. Nothing more remained but to know and to love her. Once we believe that a fellow-creature has a share in some unknown existence to which that creature's love for ourselves can win us admission, that is, of all the preliminary conditions which love exacts, the one to which he attaches most importance, the one which makes him generous or indifferent as to the rest. Even those women who pretend that they judge a man by his exterior only, see in that exterior an emanation from some special way of life, and that is why they fall in love with a soldier or a fireman, whose uniform makes them less particular about his face. They kiss and believe that beneath the crushing breastplate there beats a heart different from the rest, more gallant, more adventurous, more tender. And so it is that a young king or a crown prince may travel in foreign countries and make the most gratifying conquests, and yet lack entirely that regular and classic profile, which would be indispensable, I dare say, in an outside broker. While I was reading in the garden, I think my great-aunt would never have understood my doing, save on a Sunday, that being the day on which it was unlawful to indulge in any serious occupation, and on which she herself would lay aside her sewing. On a weekday she would have said, How you can go on amusing yourself with a book! It isn't Sunday, you know. Putting into the word amusing an implication of childishness and waste of time, my Aunt Léonie would be gossiping with Françoise until it was time for Eulalie to arrive. She would tell her that she had just seen Madame Goupil go by, 
without an umbrella, in the silk dress she had made for her the other day at Chateaudun. If she has far to go before Vespers, she may get it properly soaked. Very likely, which meant also very likely not, was the answer, for Françoise did not wish definitely to exclude the possibility of a happier alternative. There now, went on my aunt, beating her brow, that reminds me that I never heard if she got to church this morning before the elevation. I must remember to ask you, Lily. Françoise, just look at that black cloud behind the steeple, and how poor the light is on the slates. You may be certain it will rain before the day is out. It couldn't possibly keep on like this. It's been too hot. And the sooner the better, for until the storm breaks my Vichy water won't go down, she concluded, since, in her mind, the desire to accelerate the digestion of her Vichy water was of infinitely greater importance than her fear of seeing Madame Goupil's new dress ruined. Very likely, and you know that when it rains in the square, there's none too much shelter. Suddenly my aunt turned pale. What? Three o'clock? she exclaimed. But vespers will have begun already, and I've forgotten my pepsin. Now I know why that Vichy water has been lying on my stomach. And falling precipitately upon a prayer book bound in purple velvet, with gilt clasps, at which in her haste she let fall a shower of the little pictures, each in a lace fringe of yellowish paper, which she used to mark the places of the greater feasts of the church. My aunt, while she swallowed her drops, began at full speed to mutter the words of the sacred text, its meaning being slightly clouded in her brain by the uncertainty whether the pepsin, when taken so long after the Vichy, would still be able to overtake it and to send it down. Three o'clock! It's unbelievable how time flies! A little tap at the window, as though some missile had struck it, followed by a plentiful falling sound, as light, though, as if a shower of sand were being sprinkled from a window overhead. Then the fall spread, took on an order, a rhythm, became liquid, loud, drumming, musical, innumerable, universal. It was the rain. There, Françoise, what did I tell you? How it's coming down! but I think I heard the bell at the garden gate. Go along and see who can be outside in this weather. Françoise went and returned. It's Madame Amedee, my grandmother. She said she was going for a walk. It's raining hard all the same. I'm not at all surprised, said my aunt, looking up towards the sky. I've always said that she was not in the least like other people. Well, I'm glad it's she and not myself who's outside in all this. Madame Amandie is always the exact opposite of the rest, said Françoise, not unkindly, refraining until she should be alone with the other servants, from stating her belief that my grandmother was a bit off her head. There's benediction over. You, Lily, will never come now, sighed my aunt. It will be the weather that's frightened her away. But it's not five o'clock yet, Madame Octave. It's only half-past four only half-past four, and here am I, obliged to draw back the small curtains, just to get a tiny streak of daylight. At half-past four, only a week before the regation days, ah, my poor Françoise, the dear Lord must be sorely vexed with us. The world is going too far in these days. As my poor Octave used to say, we have forgotten God too often, and he is taking vengeance upon us. 
A bright flush animated my aunt's cheeks. It was Eulalie. As ill luck would have it, scarcely had she been admitted to the presence when Françoise reappeared and, with a smile which was meant to indicate her full participation in the pleasure which, she had no doubt, her tidings would give my aunt, articulating each syllable so as to show that, in spite of her having to translate them into indirect speech, she was repeating, as a good servant should, the very words which the new visitor had condescended to use, said, His reverence the Corre would be delighted, enchanted, if Madame Octave is not resting just now, and could see him. His reverence does not wish to disturb Madame Octave. His reverence is downstairs. I told him to go into the parlour. Had the truth been known, the curious visits gave my aunt no such ecstatic pleasure as Françoise supposed, and the air of jubilation, with which she felt bound to illuminate her face whenever she had to announce his arrival, did not altogether correspond to what was felt by her invalid. The curé, an excellent man, with whom I am sorry now that I did not converse more often, for, even if he cared nothing for the arts, he knew a great many etymologies. Being in the habit of showing distinguished visitors over his church, he had even planned to compile a history of the parish of Cambrai, used to weary her with his endless explanations, which, incidentally, never varied in the least degree. But when his visit synchronised exactly with Eulalie's, it became frankly distasteful to my aunt. She would have preferred to make the most of Eulalie, and not to have had the whole of her circle about her at one time. But she dared not send the curé away, and had to content herself with making a sign to Eulalie not to leave when he did, so that she might have her to herself for a little after he had gone. "'What is this I have been hearing, father, that a painter has set up his easel in your church, and is copying one of the windows? Old as I am, I can safely say that I have never even heard of such a thing in all my life. What is the world coming to next, I wonder, and the ugliest thing in the whole church, too?' I will not go so far as to say that it is quite the ugliest, for, although there are certain things in Saint-Hilaire which are well worth a visit, there are others that are very old now, in my poor basilica, the only one in all the diocese that has never even been restored. The Lord knows our porch is dirty and out of date. Still, it is of a majestic character. Take, for instance, the Esther tapestries though personally I would not give a brass farthing for the pair of them, but experts put them next after the ones at Sens. I can quite see, too, that apart from certain details which are, well, a trifle realistic, they show features which testify to a genuine power of observation. But don't talk to me about the windows. Is it common sense, I ask you, to leave up windows which shut out all the daylight? and even confuse the eyes by throwing patches of colour, to which I should be hard put to it to give a name, on a floor in which there are not two slabs on the same level. And yet they refuse to renew the floor for me, because, if you please, those are the tombstones of the abbots of Combray, and the lords of Guermont, the old counts, you know, of Brabant, direct ancestors of the present Duc de Guermont, 
and of his duchess also, since she was lady of the Gamont family, and married her cousin. My grandmother, whose steady refusal to take any interest in persons, had ended in her confusing all their names and titles, whenever any one mentioned the Duchess de Gamont, used to make out that she must be related to Madame de Vauparisis. The whole family would then burst out laughing, and she would attempt to justify herself by harking back to some invitation to a christening or funeral. I feel sure that there was a Gamont in it somewhere. And for once I would side with the others and against her, refusing to admit that there could be any connection between her school-friend and the descendant of Genevieve de Brabant. Look at Roussainville, the curé went on. It is nothing more nowadays than a parish of farmers, though in olden times the place must have had a considerable importance from its trade in felt hats and clocks. I am not certain, by the way, of the etymology of Roussainville. I should dearly like to think that the name was originally Rouville, from Rodolphi Villa, analogous, don't you see, to Chateauroux, Castrum Rodolphi, but we will talk about that some other time. Very well, the church there has superb windows, almost all quite modern, including that most imposing entry of Louis-Philippe into Cambrai, which would be more in keeping, surely, at Cambrai itself, and which is every bit as good, I understand, as the famous windows at Chartres. Only yesterday I met Dr. Piercebead's brother, who goes in for these things, and he told me that he looked upon it as a most beautiful piece of work. But, as I said to this artist, who, by the way, seems to be a most civil fellow, and he's a regular virtuoso, it appears, with his brush, what on earth, I said to him, do you find so extraordinary in this window, which is, if anything, a little dingier than the rest? I am sure that if you were to ask his lordship, said my aunt in a resigned tone, for she had begun to feel that she was going to be tired. He would never refuse you a new window. You may depend upon it, Madame Octave, replied the curé. Why, it was just his lordship himself who started the outcry about the window, by proving that it represented Gilbert the Bat, a lord of Guermont, and a direct descendant of Genevieve de Brabant, who was a daughter of the house of Guermont, receiving absolution from Saint-Hilaire. But I don't see where Saint-Hilaire comes in. Why, yes, have you never noticed, in the corner of the window, a lady in a yellow robe? Very well. That is Saint-Hilaire, who is also known, you will remember, in certain parts of the country, as Saint-Hilaire, as Saint-Hilaire, Saint-Hélier, and even in the Jura, Saint-Hélier. But these various corruptions of Sanctus Hilarius are by no means the most curious that have occurred in the names of the blessed saints. Take, for example, my good Eulalie, the case of your own patron, Sancta Eulalia. Do you know what she has become in Burgundy? St. Eloi, nothing more nor less. The lady has become a gentleman. Do you hear that, you Lily? After you are dead, they will make a man of you. Father will always have his joke. Gilbert's brother, Charles the Stammerer, was a pious prince, but having early in life lost his father, Pepin the Mad, who died as a result of his mental infirmity, he wielded the supreme power with all the arrogance of a man who has not been subjected to discipline in his youth, so much so that, whenever he saw a man in a town whose face he did not remember, he would massacre the whole place to the last inhabitant. Gilbert, wishing to be avenged on Charles, 
caused the church at Combray to be burned down, the original church that was, which Theodobert, when he and his court, left the country residence he had near here, at Thibesy, which is, of course, Theodoberiacus, to go out and fight the Burgundians, had promised to build over the tomb of St. Hilaire, if the saint brought him victory. Nothing remains of it now but the crypt, into which Theodore has probably taken you, for Gilbert burned all the rest. Finally, he defeated the unlucky Charles, with the aid of Willam, which the Corre pronounced Willam, the conqueror, which is why so many English still come to visit the place. But he does not appear to have managed to win the affection of the people of Cambrai, for they fell upon him as he was coming out from mass, and cut off his head. Theodore has a little book that he lends people, which tells you the whole story. But what is unquestionably the most remarkable thing about our church is the view from the belfry, which is full of grandeur. Certainly in your case, since you are not very strong, I should never recommend you to climb our seven-and-ninety steps, just half the number they have in the famous cathedral at Milan. It is quite towering enough for the most active person, especially as you have to go on your hands and knees, if you don't wish to crack your skull, and you collect all the cobwebs off the staircase upon your clothes. In any case, you should be well wrapped up, he went on, without noticing my aunt's fury at the mere suggestion that she could ever, possibly, be capable of climbing into his belfry, for there's a strong breeze there, once you get to the top. Some people even assure me that they have felt the chill of death up there. No matter, on Sundays there are always clubs and societies who come, some of them long distances to admire our beautiful panorama, and they always go home charmed. Wait now, next Sunday, if the weather holds, you will be sure to find a lot of people there for rogation tide. You must admit, certainly, that the view from up there is like a fairy tale with what you might call vistas along the plain, which have a quite a special charm of their own. On a clear day you can see as far as Verneuil, and then another thing, you can see at the same time places which you are in the habit of seeing one without the other, as, for instance, the course of the Vivonne and the ditches at saint assise les cambrai which are separated, really, by a screen of tall trees. Or, to take another example, there are all the canals at Joy le Vicomte, which is Gaudiacus Vicicomedis, as of course you know. Each time that I have been to Joy, I have seen a bit of a canal in one place, and then I have turned a corner and seen another. But when I saw the second, I could no longer see the first. I tried in vain to imagine how they lay by one another. It was no good. But from the top of Saint-Hilaire, it's quite another matter. The whole countryside is spread out before you like a map. Only you cannot make out the water. You would say that there were great rifts in the town, slicing it up so neatly that it looks like a loaf of bread which still holds together after it has been cut up. To get it all quite perfect, you would have to be in both places at once, up here on the top of Saint-Hilaire and down there at Chois-le-Vicomte. The curé had so much exhausted my aunt that no sooner had he gone than she was obliged to send away Eulalie also. "'Here, my poor Eulalie,' she said in a feeble voice, drawing a coin from a small purse which lay ready to her hand, "'this is just something, so that you shall not forget me in your prayers.' "'Oh, but, Madame Octave, I don't think I ought to. You know very well that I don't come here for that.' 
so Eulalie would answer, with the same hesitation and the same embarrassment, every Sunday, as though each temptation were the first, and with a look of displeasure which enlivened my aunt and never offended her, for if it so happened that Eulalie, when she took the money, looked a little less sulky than usual, my aunt would remark afterwards, I cannot think what has come over you, Lily. I gave her just the trifle I always give, and she did not look at all pleased. I don't think she has very much to complain of, all the same, Françoise would sigh grimly, for she had a tendency to regard as petty cash all that my aunt might give her for herself or her children, and as treasure riotously squandered on a pampered and ungrateful darling, the little coin slipped, Sunday by Sunday, into Eulalie's hand, but so discreetly passed that Françoise never managed to see them. It was not that she wanted to have for herself the money my aunt bestowed on Eulalie. She already enjoyed a sufficiency of all that my aunt possessed, in the knowledge that the wealth of the mistress automatically ennobled and glorified the maid in the eyes of the world and that she herself was conspicuous and worthy to be praised throughout Combray, Joie-le-Vicomte, and other cities of men, on account of my aunt's many farms, her frequent and prolonged visits from the curé, and the astonishing number of bottles of Vichy water which she consumed. Françoise was avaricious only for my aunt. Had she had control over my aunt's fortune, which would have more than satisfied her highest ambition, she would have guarded it from the assaults of strangers with a maternal ferocity. She would, however, have seen no great harm in what my aunt, whom she knew to be incurably generous, allowed herself to give away, had she given only to those who were already rich. Perhaps she felt that such persons, not being actually in need of my aunt's presence, could not be suspected of simulating affection for her on that account. Besides, presents offered to persons of great wealth and position, such as Madame Sazerat, Monsieur Swann, Monsieur Le Grandin, and Madame Goupil, to persons of the same class as my aunt, and who would naturally mix with her, seemed to Françoise to be included among the ornamental customs of that strange and brilliant life led by rich people who hunted and shot, gave balls and paid visits, a life which she would contemplate with an admiring smile. But it was by no means the same thing if, for this princely exchange of courtesies, my aunt substituted mere charity, if her beneficiaries were of the class which Françoise would label people like myself, or people no better than myself, people whom she despised even more, if they did not address her always as Madame Françoise, just to show that they considered themselves to be not as good. And when she saw that, despite all her warnings, my aunt continued to do exactly as she pleased, and to fling money away with both hands, or so at least Françoise believed, on undeserving objects, she began to find that the presents she herself received from my aunt were very tiny, compared to the imaginary riches squandered upon Eulalie. There was not, in the neighbourhood of Combray, a farm of such prosperity and importance that Françoise doubted Eulalie's ability to buy it, without thinking twice, 
out of the capital which her visits to my aunt had brought in. It must be added that Eulalie had formed an exactly similar estimate of the vast and secret hordes of Francoise. So, every Sunday, after Eulalie had gone, Francoise would mercilessly prophesy her coming downfall. She hated Eulalie, but was at the same time afraid of her, and so felt bound, when Eulalie was there, to look pleasant. But she would make up for that after the other's departure, never, it is true, alluding to her by name, but hinting at her, in sibylline oracles, or in utterances of a comprehensive character, like those of Ecclesiastes the preacher, but so worded that their special application could not escape my aunt. After peering out at the side of the curtain to see whether Eulalie had shut the front door behind her, flatterers know how to make themselves welcome and to gather up the crumbs, but have patience, have patience. Our God is a jealous God, and one fine day he will be avenged upon them. She would declaim, with a sidelong, insinuating glance of Joash, thinking of Athaliah alone, when he says that the prosperity of wicked men runs like a torrent past, and soon is spent. End of section 8